The last time I was here, approximately three weeks ago, we were preaching through 1 John 2, and I mentioned in the section where John says to the congregation, my little children, that John was using familial language here. He was talking about how the people of God are one big family. I also pointed to the passage where Jesus says that in this world, when you follow him, you will gain a hundredfold of what you lost. Brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, households, and persecutions and eternal life in the next world. And I exhorted you all as a congregation and myself to be a family to one another, to be brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers to one another, that we are a family, so we should act like a family. Well, since then, I had to uh, quickly... Uh, because of tragedy hitting physical family, had to leave to Florida and be away from you all, uh, which I haven't been for really a long, long time. I don't know if I've ever been away from you all for even a few weeks at all since I have been a member here. Well, I say that to say that um, but while being away from you all, I knew that already, by the way, but I really came to see that this church really does a good job of being a family to one another, that we really do love one another, that we really are brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers to each other. And I just exhort you to continue to do that, continue the good work, continue to love one another, continue to be there for each other. This is the way God would have us to do. So let's jump into our passage in 1 John. We can continue to go and read through 1 John chapter 2, and tonight we're going to focus in on verses 3 through 6. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. I'm going to begin reading for context, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Just look to verse 3 and Look at some particulars. Verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. What does that mean? What does it mean that we have come to know God? Or more particularly here, come to know Christ. And we know it's more particularly talking about Christ because if you look down to verse 6, it says that if we abide in him, we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He walked is referring to the way that Jesus walked. So what does it mean to come to know Christ, to come to know God? Well, there's two types of knowledge. Well, there's many, but there's a few types of knowledge. There's, there's intellectual knowledge, knowing the facts of a case, knowing that so-and-so is a certain age, a certain skin color, this is the things they like, the things they don't like. There's a whole list of factual knowledge that we can have but there's also an experiential knowledge to have a relationship, to intimately come to know someone. It's the difference between reading a book about somebody and just knowing historical facts about an individual 
versus actually knowing them, having a personal relationship to him. The Bible helps us to know this idea of knowing him, and our passage here refers to that relational, intimate knowledge by how this word or concept is found in other passages. One passage in particular I think that's very helpful to illuminate what this knowledge of God really refers to is the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 19 to 23. This is the scene where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman that he met at the well. And here's what the woman says to Jesus. She says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So the conversation is about where should we worship the Father? And he says, It was coming a time where it's not on this mountain, where the Samaritans say, or not in Jerusalem, where the Jews say that you will worship the Father. Then he goes on to say to her, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. Notice the contrast. So, in some sense, they worship the Father. They do worship the Father. Their object to worship is the God of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The issue isn't that they're not they're worshiping some false god. They're not worshiping Baal or Allah or anything of the sort, they're worshiping God. But the problem is they're worshiping what they do not know. They know facts about God, and there were some things that they twisted about God, but they fundamentally do not know God. Jesus says, we Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And there's a connection between knowing and salvation. To know God And to worship him is to be saved. Not to know God and yet to worship him is not to be saved. And that is called false worship. That's why Jesus immediately contrasts the difference between true worshipers and false worshipers. There are people, and that's just frightening. There are people who worship the Father but do not know him. That's terrifying. I mean, it's one thing to worship something else and be lost. It's another thing to worship the Father, not to know him, and to be lost. And that's exactly what Jesus is describing. False worshipers and true worshipers, but notice the false worshipers are people who are still having God as their object of worship. And yet the fundamental problem is they do not know the object of their worship. They only know things about him. They don't have a personal relationship with him. It is not Sufficient to say, I know things about God. Many people, in fact, all people know things about God. Consider Romans chapter 1, that God has implanted his knowledge in all of us. So all of us have some knowledge of God. Some of us have more. Some people have studied the Bible many hours. Some people have studied the Bible a few hours. Your studying of the Bible will bring you no salvation at all. Consider the conversation Jesus had with the Pharisees. He says that you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life. But they point to me. Bible knowledge is insufficient. You can ace every Bible test and end up straight in hell because you need to know 
more than just intellectual things about God. You need to actually know God. John 17, 3 says this. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The connection, eternal life and knowledge of God and the Son whom he sent. True religion is to know God and to know Jesus. False religion religion is to merely know things about God, but not to personally know him. And this, this idea of needing to have a personal relationship with God was actually one of the fundamental things that caused me to be saved. Many years ago, I came to realize that I knew facts about God, but I did not know God. I did not even have ever even read Jesus for that matter. You really can't know someone that you never talk to, that you never have any personal relationship with. So we need to be asking ourselves, do we know things about God or do we know God? Because if we simply know things about God, then this is what God says about us. He says this in Matthew 15. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now here, he's not talking about Samaritans, Samaritan heretics, the Arians, Jehovah Witnesses, or something like that. Here, he's talking about Jews who are in the synagogue. They're in conservative churches. And he's saying about these people, yeah, they honor me with their lips. They are honoring me. They're saying true things about me. They're saying the Shema. They're saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And what did James say? True. This is good, right, holy, pure. They're honoring me with their lips. They say God is great, and they sing the songs. But their heart, their heart is far from me. They don't know God. They have no relationship with God. They have no love for God. They have a love for religion. And that's a terrible, horrible thing to have love for religion and not have love for God. In vain do they worship me, teaching the commandments of men. And so, as you think about that passage, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, I think this is a point that we should all do some self-inventory. Right? Hopefully, this description, which is the description of a hypocrite and a false believer, is not you. However, can you sometimes act like the hypocrite? Can sometimes this be you? Because sometimes we honor God with our lips, but our heart is far. It's distance. We're running in sin. We're running from the Lord. If we do, we need to see God is not honored in that. God is not saying, well, at least you showed up. God's saying, be pure before me. He even says to lift up holy hands in prayer. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to lift up our hands. It's really not about hands. If you look at the commentaries, they say it's not about the hands. It's about the difference between lifting up holy hands, you look at the hands and, and they're holy and they're pure, versus lifting up the hands and seeing bloodshed, sin, vileness. God doesn't want your vile hands, vile deeds to worship. He wants clean hands. And we get clean hands by repentance and turning to him. So the question is, do we know the Lord? Do we walk with him? Is God our friend? Or do we simply claim that we know God? Do we simply say that we're at peace with God, but in reality, we do not know him? Or worse still, we're like the Samaritans who claim to know God and even do many acts of worship, and yet all of this worship was false. Salvation was to be found in the Jews, and all of the Samaritan worship for the Lord was in vain. I think there's nothing worse imaginable than to sit here in this very church and one day find yourself in hell. There's just nothing worse. There's nothing worse than to be self-deceived. 
for you to trick yourself into believing a lie. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen people do that very thing. They're self-deceived. They convince themselves of something, and then you kind of, right, you kind of press them a little bit and try to, try to show them that this is not true, but then the, the more deception comes up. What do you do with such a person when someone is self-deceived? Well, I think you pray for them. You lightly nudge them and try to poke holes in their self-deception so that they can have a ray of light and to see. But the point being here is there's nothing worse than self-deception. There's nothing worse than being someone who thinks that they're saved and thinks that they know the Lord when, in fact, they do not. So the question is, how does a self-deceived person know that they're self-deceived? Isn't that the problem? If you're self-deceived, how do you know you're self-deceived? Because you're self-deceived in the first place. Well, I think one of the ways that we can see if we're self-deceived is by asking the question, are we self-deceived? Is by willing to admit, I could be self-deceived. It's not just that other guy, it could be me, right? When you're sitting here listening to sermons, we should not always be thinking, the other guy needs that. He need, no, you need that. God brought you here so that you can hear the message and to be received for yourself. And your neighbor needs it too, but you need it. You need to focus on you, not your neighbor. And so one of the ways that we can see if we're self-deceived is by opening up the possibilities that we could be self-deceived and being willing to take the test that God has prescribed to see, in fact, if we're self-deceived. You have to be willing to be wrong, in other words. You have to not have the humility to say, I might be wrong. So how can I know if I am wrong? Well, thank God that he gives us tests. We're not just to be navel gazers who are just staring at ourselves and just confused and, and never have any certainty. And I'm not trying to take away anyone's certainty, but the Bible does say that we are to make our calling and election sure. The Bible does tell us to examine ourselves. The point of this passage is to scare us in some ways to realize some people are self-deceived and to, for us to ask the question, am I one of those people? And so God gives us a litmus test to see if we are in fact self-deceived. It's right there in verse 3 of our passage. Look to verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. That's exactly what we're asking. How do I know if I know the Lord or if I'm self-deceived? Well, by this we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. What's the answer? Obedience. Obedience. This is exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, what? Anybody know the end of that passage? If you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you know him, then you will follow him. Jesus says that the disciple is not greater than his master, but it's good enough for the disciple to be like his master. And Jesus gave this wonderful parable in Matthew 21, 28 about these two sons. Jesus says this, what do you think? A man had two sons. I have three sons. A man had two sons. And he went, into, he went to the first and said, son, Go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and he said, to this, he said the same thing to him. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Which one? The one who said, yeah, 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 I got it, Dad. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And you go back and not take care of it. Or the other guy who you say, go take care of it. Nah, Dad, you're on your own. And you go back, and he's taking care of it. Which one has obeyed the will of his father? And they said the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. 
See, it's one thing to say we are Christian people and we know we are saved. It's another thing to actually do it, to actually live it. Talk is cheap. It's easy to say that we're Christian people. But the question is, how do you walk? How do you live? There was one person who said, if an agency was seeking to convict you of being a Christian, would they find enough evidence to convict you? It's an interesting question. If, if an agency was to follow you and try to convict you, could they convict you? I don't know. We have to ask ourselves, are we living as Christian people? Are we saying that we believe in God, but living lives as if we truly do not? And I'm not talking just about outward acts of obedience, because that was what the Jews were doing. They went to the synagogue. They went to church. They listened to conservative Christian radio and all the other stuff. They had all of that. What were they lacking? True knowledge of God. True obedience to God. Truly loving and following him. They did not walk in the spirit. They walked after the flesh. They were hypocrites. They were liars. Brothers and sisters, we should be watchful. We should examine ourselves. We should examine not just ourselves, but others. One of the most haunting words in the Bible to me is the words that Cain said to God about Abel. Remember the conversation that Cain, God said to Cain, where's your brother? And Cain, snarky. It's unbelievable. He was so snarky. He was even snarky to God. But he says, am I my brother's keeper? We are our brother's keeper. We should watch after one another. We should care for one another and to be people who are concerned for each other. And so we should be watchful. We should examine ourselves. We should examine others and to see if there are reasons for concern, to see if we're really following after the Lord. And if we see some things that are questionable in ourselves or in, our, in others, the first thing we should do is to intercede. The first thing we should do is go to the Lord and pray and ask that God would save this person if they're not saved or save us if we are saved, right? To me, oftentimes when somebody is doubting their salvation, I think what people want to do at first is to comfort them and to say, you are saved. But that's not my reaction. My reaction is to say, if you doubt your salvation, go to the Lord and make your salvation sure this very day. Cry out to the Lord and ask him to save you once more because it's much better for a saved person who's already saved to ask the Lord to save them from a lost person to assume they're saved and never to do it. If we ever doubt our salvation, we go back to the Lord. We go back to the cross. We say, I put all my faith and trust in you. We don't want people to ignorantly assume that they themselves are saved. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have charity with others and don't give people a benefit of doubt, but it does mean that if we have reason for concern, we should intercede for them. And we should ask the Lord, if they're not saved, to save them. In other words, all I'm really suggesting is we obey the words of Second Peter, which I've already stated, but I'll state again. Therefore, brothers, be, more, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. To confirm it. And the litmus test, there are two. Really, there are two. One, do you believe right things about the gospel? In fact, this actually recently happened to me. Somebody suggested somebody else I knew was not saved. So I said, well, this is interesting. This person's not saved. They were being their brother's keeper. But the question is, were they being charitable keepers or not? Were they being uncharitable? Were they coming with the rod? Or were they just legitimately asking if this person was saved? So I said, okay, this person may not be saved. Well, let's, let's, let's test it. How should I test it? I said, do they believe the gospel? 
Do they know true things about God? Do they even know the gospel? Because you can't be saved unless you believe the gospel. You can't believe the gospel if you don't know it. The first question is, do they believe right things? And they said yes. My second question was this. Are they living in gross, unrepented sin? Are they walking in darkness and claiming that they're in the light? Are they people who are saying, we know God, but refusing to keep his commandments? And as our pastor says in verse 4, they are liars. They said no. In my mind, the case is almost closed at this point. I mean, what else is there left? These are the two litmus tests. Do you believe true things about God, i.e. believe his gospel? And are you living a life of godliness? Are you walking and obeying his commandments? If you pass these two tests, I have no reason to think that you're not saved. If you fail either one of these tests, I have every reason to think you're not saved because that's what the Bible says. That you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. I mean, that's exactly what verse 4 says. Look at verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. I just, I love how clear the Bible is, right, at certain points. Certain things are confusing and difficult, right? Some, even Peter says certain things in Paul are hard. And what's interesting is the things in Paul are hard are all intellectual things, theological things. We all have all these debates. Can you lose your salvation? Can you get true believers lose their salvation or not? There's all these debates about these things. Is Melchizedek a typology or is he really a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ? There's all these things about this, right? Is the new temple that's coming a literal temple or figurative? People debate endlessly about those things. You know what they don't debate? Is adultery sin. <laughs> At least you shouldn't debate that. It's so clear. God was so crystal clear about practical acts of holiness that no one who was honest could possibly misunderstand those things. And this passage is crystal clear as well. If you say you know him, but you do not keep his commandments, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Hopefully you see the repetition here. He's constantly hitting on this point. What John is doing is ringing the alarm bells and saying the base, same basic concept over and over. And his concept is this. Works matter. You know, some Roman Catholics and some enemies of the gospel view that you really can't preach the gospel, that salvation is by faith alone, because it will lead to antinomianism. It will lead to people who think that works don't matter then. Well, believe all of God's word. Don't just leave, don't just stop at John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's great. Stay there. Rest there. But keep reading. That's not the only passage that the Bible says. This passage right here also says, if you say you know him, don't keep his commandments, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. Works matter. They matter a whole lot. They're, in fact, the litmus test of whether someone is truly saved. John's clarity here simply cannot be escaped. Easy believism, the doctrine that says all you need to do is believe, it doesn't matter if you live like the devil, because you'll be saved anyways, is a lie. That's exactly what John says. It is a lie. And anyone who believes that, at least believes that about themselves, because they themselves are refusing to keep his commandments, is a liar. And people who proclaim that, Maybe they're well-intended. Maybe they're, they think they're trying to preserve and keep the gospel pure. But they're actually teaching a lie that if someone were to believe and to live out, well, the truth would not be in them. So in that way, it's a very, very dangerous concept. Easy believism simply is not true. 
and is not what God's word says. And you cannot hold to easy believism and possibly hold to this passage. The clarity is too great. They are simply not compatible. And so when we encounter something in the Bible that is crystal clear and we don't like it, what should we do? Well, what we don't do is simply change it, ignore it, and twist it. What we do is accept it. We repent. We're smashed on the rock of Christ's word. And we say, your ways are better than my ways. And why would you have it any other way? Why would you even want to believe in easy believism? What, what benefit would that be? Here's what the Bible says in Galatians 6. Galatians 6 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Do not be deceived, brethren. God is not mocked. Now, how could God be mocked? God is not mocked. Why? Because if you sow from the flesh, you'll reap corruption. You sow to the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life. Does that make sense? God's not mocked because of this principle. But how would God be mocked if you sow to the flesh and reap eternal life? Easy believism. That's how he'd be mocked. Why would we want that to be true? Why would we want God to be mocked, to be humiliated, to be played? In fact, this is another teaching that resulted in my salvation, realizing that God would not be mocked. My plan, and I share this in my testimony almost every time I share it, was to live like the devil all the way up until the end, and then at the very end, be the thief on the cross and get saved. I won't go into all of my testimony and why I realized that wouldn't work, but basically this passage, God is not mocked. If you do that, you're going to hell. Because if you sow to the flesh, you also reap from the flesh. God is not mocked. God cannot be played. God is not to be, his grace is not to be twisted into licentiousness. God is gracious. He is slow to anger. He offers salvation. But in the end of the day, if you refuse to obey his commandments, that means that you've never actually come to know him in the first place. He's not mocked. These things are true. Now, if anyone thinks what I'm saying is at odds with the gospel, consider also Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I encourage everyone to memorize this passage because it's such a wonderful summary of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saved you. Not by works at all. God saved you for works. I mean, that's why you're a new creation. He, he even says that. That in Christ, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. None of that matters. You know what he says later? But a new creation. That's what matters. That you are a new creation. That you are born again. You have this new heart that will walk and follow after God. That's the connection. If you've been saved by God, you've been transformed by God. If you've been transformed by God, you'll have a new heart. That new heart will be inclined toward good things, which you will walk in. Not perfectly, but there will be fruit in your life. And if there is no fruit, then there is no salvation. I have a few other passages here, but I'll just mention them in passing because I want to say a few other things before we close here. Consider Matthew 25. Jesus gives this parable where he gathers all the nations before him. And you know what he tests them on? Whether you visited me, whether you fed me, whether you clothed works. That was the test. This litmus test is talked about the Bible. James chapter 2, he says that if you have faith without works, your faith is like a man who says to another man who's homeless and cold and hungry, go in peace, be warm, be filled. God bless you, brother. I love you. He said, what use is that? Better not to say anything. 
because you're a liar. It's not true. Just faith without works is dead. So I hope I made that point most clear. We must have good works. Good works are absolutely vital. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. All right, in the little time we have left, let's look at one other thing here. Verse 5 says this. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. What does that mean? So when I was reading this passage, I felt like I understood just about everything. But, but this, I don't feel like I fully understood it. I mean, I kind of got it. It's saying, you know, basically that we're supposed to love God and loving God is manifest, is shown by keeping his word. So contextually, I kind of understand it, but I kind of stumbled over that word, the love of God is perfected. And the reason is, is because what's the opposite of perfect? Imperfect. And so whenever I run across a problem like this, the first thing I do is go to other translations. I'm like, okay, maybe there's a Greek problem. Maybe there's a word problem. Why this word? So I go see what other translations say. And the other ones, some of your Bibles might read, the love of God is completed. But that didn't help me either because what's the opposite of being complete? Incomplete. But the problem is, in the passage, we're not talking about perfect faith versus imperfect faith or complete faith versus partial faith. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about true faith versus false faith, being one who the truth abides in you versus being a liar. So this is why I stumbled upon a stumble on this word. Of why here? What's, what's the reason the word perfected is here or complete? Well, I started to dig into the commentators and look at some other verses, and it's interesting that the phrase love of God can have two basic meanings. I was taking the passage, and I don't know, maybe you take it this way too, that the love of God refers to your love for God. Your love for God is perfected or completed by you obeying his commandments, which is a very possible understanding of the passage, and that phrase love of God can mean your love for God. But interesting enough, the phrase love of God can also mean God's love for you. It can be the exact opposite. It's either your love for God or God's love for you. And so an example of the latter expression that God's love for us is found in like 1 John 4, 9, which says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world that we might live through him. The love of God is God's love for us. Or 1 John 4, 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. There's a parallel. If no one has ever seen God, if we love one another, then these two things are true. God abides in us by his Holy Spirit, and his love in us is perfected. Now, that passage right there, 1 John 4, 12, you want to look at it, is very much so parallel to our passage because the concept of love of God is in both, and also the phrase perfected is in both or completed. And so what I think is going on here is that this passage is not actually talking about our love for God is perfected by obeying his commandments, but rather that God's love for us is perfected when we keep his commandments. And to try to explain that, a parallel passage might be very helpful. In Romans 5.5, 5, it says this, Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the reason that we don't have to be hopeless, that we're never going to make it, that we're going to be out there uh, abandoning the faith and end up in hell, is because that we have this great truth, namely, that God by his Holy Spirit poured out his love in our hearts. And that love is perfected or completed when that love poured out in our hearts results in us loving God. God puts his love in us so that we 
pour that love back out on him. And the connection that has with good works is back to that famous passage in, in John. If we love him, we'll keep his commandments. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. Why do we obey his commandments? Because we love him. What is the source of that love? It does not originate in us. God poured out his love in us by his spirit. So I think what's really going on here is it's saying that the reason that we're a liar and the truth is not in us if we don't obey God's commands is because for those who are born again, God has poured out his love and it comes to completion by us walking in his steps. That's what God does. We do not obey these commands. We do not follow God because we're just so strong-willed or we're just so holy. We do it because he's poured out his love in us. God has work in us, a new heart that loves him and obeys his commandment. And this is the test of a true believer. Please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for salvation. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to engineer obedience, that we don't have to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but that you have poured your love in our hearts so that we can obey these things. We thank you, Lord, that it is you who works in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure, Lord. We thank you that you have not left us alone, that you've given us the Holy Spirit, that we can walk in the Spirit instead of walking in the flesh, that we can be new children, we can walk as your Son walked, through the power of the Spirit, that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. Lord, just help us to hold on to the gospel, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not of works, the gift of God. But help us also to rest in this passage, that if we say that we know him, we do not keep his commandments, we are liars, and the truth is not in us. Help us to find that biblical balance where works are important, but never salvific. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.